Welcome to this podcast called Curious About Recovery. I am Kirsten Honeyball. I am your host. And in this podcast, I will be diving deep into eating disorders, which are complex and challenging to navigate. So whether you're a sufferer, a professional, a family or loved one of a sufferer, you can join me as I get curious by interviewing professionals, chatting to eating disorder survivors and sharing my personal experience with an eating disorder so that you can better understand various perspectives remove stigma, hear inspiring testimonies, and simply get curious about all things eating disorder related. I would like to put out a trigger warning. These episodes explore the topic of eating disorders and some content may be triggering to listeners. Topics explored may mention, but are not limited to, trauma, diets, food and body types, suicide, mental illness, substance use, self-harm, violence, gender identification topics, and more. Please take care before listening to any episodes. It's important to note that this podcast is not aimed to diagnose, treat or cure any form of mental illness and should not be seen as a replacement for treatment of eating disorders. Everything said here is expressed in relation to personal and professional opinions and listeners should be encouraged to view these episodes as an open-minded exploration of various possibilities and perspective rather than hard facts and solutions. Please take what applies or resonates with you and leave the rest. And if you're struggling with an eating disorder, don't hesitate to reach out to me at Kirsten at kirstenhoneyball.co.za. Today we have Dr. Evelyn Higgins with us. She is the founder of Wired for Addiction and is a recognized international expert in the science of addiction recovery. As a certified addictionologist, diplomat of the American Board of Disability Analysts specializing in pain management, and diplomat of the American College of Addictionology and Compulsive Disorders, Dr. Higgins has had the honor of advising the U.S. Surgeon General, producing and hosting a Gracie Award-winning nationally syndicated health and wellness program, and serving as a 1996 Olympic team doctor and Olympic torch bearer. With 35 years in practice, Dr. Higgins has specialized in the clinical application of the neuroscience and epigenetics behind mental health complexities. Recent events that she has been involved in include presenting at the 2023 Executive Summit on Addiction Treatment in Waikoloa Beach, Hawaii. She was honored as a 2022 TEDx speaker, 2022 International Society of Substance Use Professionals, annual conference panelist in Abu Dhabi in the UAE, 2022 International Gambling Conference in Auckland, New Zealand, and 2021 nominee for Modern Healthcare's Top 25 Innovators in Healthcare. In 2018 and 2023, she was a Compass Transatlantic speaker and a frequent national media healthcare commentator. Dr. Higgins finds herself at the nexus of epigenetics, neuroscience, and health. I'm so honored to have her here talking to us about Wired for Addiction and how the work that she does is helping people and changing lives all around the world with regards to addiction and mental health issues. So thanks so much, Dr. Higgins, for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear about what it is that you do and kind of what got you to this point in your personal life and in your career. If you could just share that a little bit of that story for us. Sure, would love to, Kirsten. Thank you for having me on. First of all, really um, great that you're 
listeners can benefit by this information. So how I got to where I am, wow, that's a long, <laughs> that's 35 years of stories. We'll get to the last part. Um, I was originally practicing in disability and pain management and seeing that people, the, the same one size fits all was how people were being treated. And it wasn't working. People were getting prescriptions that weren't managing their pain, that weren't managing their a better life. And then that was, you know, 30 years ago. And then as of 20 years ago, I'm seeing people not just becoming dependent on these, but becoming addicted and not getting the end result that they were even after. And then personally, how I got involved with addictions was I married a man who was an alcoholic. And actually, he had several addictions, not just the alcohol. That was his most predominant. Um, we had a child together. And a year after my daughter was born, we found out that he was adopted. So now I had more unanswered questions as to what's a health history here? You know, what do I need to know? I had no gauge of looking at relatives or anybody else to know about concerns for her life. So that was kind of um, the impetus of where we went to. Additionally, in this area, we were not using technology the way we do in other areas of healthcare. There was truly an inequity. You know, we thought with people with addictions, whatever kind they are, that, well, they got themselves there. So it's on them. And that's really how my work evolved. Thank you for sharing that with with the listeners and with me and your experiences. You know, they, they say the things that you go through, the triumphs and the struggles that you go through in life are often the things that you then come out of the strongest and the most informed about. So it's a, a tragedy, but also at the same time, just wonderful to see where it's led you. You spoke in one of the, in one of the talks that you that I've listened to lately on, on TED, you spoke about addiction not being a moral flaw. And you speak about this idea of um, biomarkers being able to tell us, you know, what addiction is doing on a genetic level. So uh, I would love you to just expand a little bit on this idea of uh, biomarkers, what they are, or what they tell us, and, and, and what we can, uh, what information we can extrapolate from it, and what it means for people who are struggling with things like addiction and other mental health concerns and, and health concerns. Sure, great question. So yes, you referenced my TED talk. In the TED talk, I say addiction is not a moral flaw. You know, no one wakes up one day saying, I can't wait to lose my family, my friends, my job, my home. That's not how it works. It's this slow progression of where we finally get to when our life then is turned upside down. Biomarkers, that's what we do at Wired for Addiction. So we have a patent pending process looking at 85 different biomarkers related to addiction and mental health because those are intertwined. And I'm sure we'll get to talk about that. But a biomarker is simply a measurable substance within a person's body. So biomarkers are things like neurotransmitters, which are brain chemicals, hormones, other things we look at, not to use too many science words, but you have to call it what it is, and then I'll say what that means. So a single nucleotide polymorphism or a SNP, that's simply an error in genetic coding. And that error creates what we call aberrant behavior. Aberrant behaviors are things like risk-taking or impulse control or addiction. 
or anxiety or depression. So that that coding isn't correct. And then we see this clinical play out of those genes. It's so interesting what you can tell from observing the biomarkers in a person's genetic makeup. And, and let's say a person has identified a biomarker for addiction. Now, you know, obviously my my podcast, we speak about uh, eating disorders, but, you know, addiction is something where, okay, you foresee a potential in this area or depression, you foresee a potential in this area. What does someone do once they recognize this biomarker? I mean, maybe perhaps for a person who has an addictive biomarker that might say, okay, it's probably not a good idea for you to dabble in um, alcohol or drugs or anything like that. But how does a person who has identified a biomarker for depression, anxiety, risk taking, those kinds of things, how do they then move forward in their lives in a cautionary way? You know, what do they, uh, it, do you know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's exactly, you're getting to the point, Kirsten, of, of where we want people to understand what the value of this information is. So there's not just one marker that says, okay, eating disorder or alcohol or opioids. It's all of them together and what they mean together. So if you think about when someone has an addiction, whatever type of addiction it is, typically it's from a a diagnosed condition of an addiction, an undiagnosed condition or a trauma that that individual is trying to self-medicate. And someone that has a propensity towards addiction is going to find that perfect self-medication for them, whether it be food, whether it be alcohol, whether it be gambling, whether it be sex, they're going to find that one pacifier and it works initially. And when it works, they think, wow, okay, I feel so much better. It works until it doesn't work. And then that becomes their problem that becomes their disease process. So when we do a a lab panel on someone and we see, let's say, the propensity for these co-occurring disorders like anxiety or depression, we have the individual understand where this is coming from. So first off, that's kind of like a, a, a big sigh of relief to say, wow, this isn't just me acting out for something. This is me actually trying to fix what's going on with me incorrectly, but it felt good. So I thought it was a better thing for me to do. And that makes sense for anybody. So we look at the biochemical pathways. Once we've identified a problem with, say, anxiety or depression, we look at those biochemical pathways and say, where are the problems? What do we need to support to get that pathway to go to completion in the correct way? And and how do you do that? Or how do you as Wired for Addiction provide that support? So we um, have our lab panel, which we drop ship literally anywhere in the world. We have patients globally. And that's an easy way to do it. It's at home. You take your samples. It's simply a buccal swab. Comes back to our lab. Several weeks later, we get all of the information from that. We put together what we call a biomarker evaluation report, which is 30 some odd pages. And then we go over all of this information with you in a very extensive consult. And then we typically work with an individual over a six month period of time to make sure that we're on track 
with what we're doing with the protocol and it's working in that we actually start to see the changes in the individual's life. Uh, you, you touched on this idea of, you know, co-occurring illnesses. Uh, I don't know quite how it works, but if you could explain a little bit more to me about the trends in co-occurring illnesses, like have you seen trends in neurodivergence and ADHD and eating disorders? Or you know what I mean? Like, do those things show up in conjunction or, or not? Great question. And, and the answer is yes. Typically, someone has a co-occurring disorder underlying the addiction. And the focus becomes on the addiction. And so, so many times what is missed is that bottom rung with why did you even start to reach outside of yourself to feel better? And we find anxiety, depression, OCD, ADD, ADHD, the list goes on and on. But that co-occurring disorder has to be treated simultaneously. It's that, say, anxiety or depression that someone suffers from in the beginning that makes you try to find something that makes you feel better. And that goes undiagnosed so often. When someone looks at their lab results, Kirsten, I can't tell you how many times they actually start crying because all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, this is the exact picture of how I feel. And it's because there's something going on physiologically, not just me trying to quote unquote, I'm using air quotes here, mess up my life, but there's a sigh of relief because now it makes sense. And we isolate, we measure, and we treat. So if we isolate these biomarkers, we can then measure them and then we can treat them. We now have a blueprint of where to go instead of guessing. You look at so many times when by the time someone comes to us, they've already been treated by many different facilities or physicians and still no help because no one used objective labs. That individual was diagnosed based on vocabulary. And what if you and I don't have the same vocabulary? We are not going to arrive at the same place in our minds of what's going on, right? So you would think by 2023, with such advances that we've had within healthcare, that we would bring it to this area as well. You know, and that kind of goes back to the first question you asked me. And I said that there is an inequity within the addiction world, kind of like you got yourself here. Good luck. Get out. It's such valuable information. And, and you speak so powerfully into this idea of, like you said, also in the, the TED talk, I listened to about you can't diagnose via vocabulary. Um, and I've witnessed this so much in people either with peers um, that I've met in my recovery journey or with clients that I've worked with, this idea of, okay, cool, I've gone to a psychiatrist for 15 minutes and I've said one or two things and I've been put on this SSRI or this antidepressant or whatever. And then a whole world of other co-occurring things happen. And, you know, you often see these trial and error kind of modalities to finding effective medication or treatment processes for an individual. And you're basically saying, let's stop that trial and error process and let's actually get accurate about what we're doing. Exactly. The, the trial and error part of it is where we're, we're not practicing the way we should as we do in other areas. We should be using diagnostics. We should be using the science that's available today to help in this area. 
And I suppose you'd also be able to then say something like, let's just say you identify one biomarker for a certain illness and then you identify another one. And one person might be treated for illness number one um, with a certain medication, but that would actually be adverse to the biomarker that you've identified in illness number two. So to be able to put those things together, like for instance, this one size fits all approach doesn't work, especially if you've got a lot of things going on. My personal experience is that I had late diagnosed uh, ADHD, um, which I in hindsight recognize was self-medicating through uh, binge eating and purging. And now in, in hindsight, then also saying the medication that I was put on worsened the ADHD, you know, so like, this is such an important space for you to be holding is to be able to say, let's get it right the first time. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And you bring up a, a perfect personal example. And, and thank you for sharing that because I'm sure that really brings solace to your listeners saying, you know, I'm not the only one. For a lot of people, they're suffering in silence because they're afraid to say to somebody else what they're doing as a result of how they're feeling, but they, they're not the doctor. They don't know how to diagnose it. And you know, I can't tell you how many times we see a patient who's been on an SSRI drug or an antidepressant for 10, 15, even 20 years. First off, those medications were never designed to be taken that long. They were designed for an acute situation. Something happens in your life. You're having a really difficult time getting past it to be on it short term. We now see people on it for decades. And I'll do a lab panel on someone. And, and let me back up. The, the reason they were put on an SSRI, let's say you went to the doctor and you said, you know, doc, I just don't feel good. I don't have this zest for life anymore. Okay, here, take an antidepressant. How do we know what neurotransmitters are being affected? So the person's on an SSRI. I see them, you know, 15 years after that. Their serotonin is in the tank. They don't have any. So first off, that drug did absolutely nothing to help them, only put stress on their kidneys, their liver, their bladder during that time that they were taking it. And we look at genes that would be able to tell us, there's a, a specific gene that would tell us that on a, this particular individual, if you have it, that an SSRI drug was not going to be effective for you to begin with. So here, this person for that long a period of time, you know, half a year is too much. A month is too much if that's the case. So, you know, in, in your case, diagnosed ADHD and saying, well, what was truly affected? What neurotransmitters? Was it phenylethylalanine? Was it dopamine? Was it GABA immunobutyric acid? Was it epinephrine? Was it norepinephrine? Was it dopamine? Was it serotonin? We don't know. And then, if you're taking the wrong medication, that can then bring on its own set of circumstances of this does not feel good, but I'm supposed to feel better. Let me try to figure out how I'm going to feel better. And it just becomes this cycle that goes on and on and on. There's also a lab test that we offer. We don't have the patent on this, but we offer it. It's a pharmacogenomic test. And that tells you within this individual's DNA what medications are going to be safe, what are become cautionary what would be, be the most effective. So doesn't that sound like a starting point for everybody? Even if you don't have anything wrong, it's like, don't you want to know 
before a situation may or may not occur, what's going to work for you? I feel like, you know, you guys are just pioneering in this space of uh, medical technology and science and all of that. And, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh my gosh, how much time and money are we going to save with this approach? (laughs) Something that came to me now, as you were speaking, was also this idea of specific biomarkers that we see co-occurring illnesses, things that are going to be effective, not effective. I'm curious about what you know currently with the information that you have about biomarkers related to disordered eating. Have you found specific things that happen or that you observed or not yet or a bunch of stuff? Because a lot of the time, eating disorders are one of the most complex things to recover from because there's just so many, it's like whack-a-mole. It's like one thing gets pushed down and the other thing gets popped up. And so is there anything that you have found in your work around disordered eating and genetic biomarkers? Great question. So there's not one gene that we say, okay, this is um, disordered eating. Okay, this is alcohol. This is drug use, misuse. There's not one. It's all of them together. And um, example, some of the neuropsych genes that we look at definitely pinpoint, okay, this person has a much higher propensity for an addiction. You know, if we then see that there is anxiety and depression related to it, it just becomes what did this person find that makes them feel better? And that becomes their addiction. Some people have co-occurring addictions, you know, kind of like if it's there and it feels good, you know, that I'm going to lend myself to it. So in in, in my TED talk, I, I, I frame it around if in your youth you knew that you had a predisposition to addictions and or mental health, would you make different choices? So that's really where the power in this lies. If you know this, we still all have free will. We still all can play out our lives the way we want to. But if you had this information, would you make different choices? You know, some families, cardiac disease is the thing they have to be concerned about. Some families in their DNA, it's cancer. Some families, it's mental health. And if you know this, you can then rationalize a lot of it and say, I'm not going to make this choice. I use the example with when I'm talking to teenagers, you know, kids like 15, 16, and I'm like, okay, your buddies are going to start saying, here's a good idea. After school, let's try this, whatever it is. And you do it with your friends. You know, you're saying to your friends, hey, I want to do that again. And they're saying, no, we're cool. We're good with this. We don't need to do it again. But because you had all this going on, it felt good for you, right? So you're born with your DNA. It is what it is. But it's then the environment around us, the world around us that shapes what we do with that DNA. And that's the study of epigenetics, which is fascinating. I suppose where that takes me is, so if my mother in my childhood had this information and she had seen, ah, well, my child has the biomarker for ADHD and OCD and um, anxiety and da 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 da. She might not have encouraged a diet when I was twelve years old, <laughs> you know, um, because of that addictive like element or addiction in itself, or might have been more cautious in those kinds of areas of something that I might have latched onto. I was wondering if you see a connection in people with the 
with eating disorders. I don't, um, I don't know if you've seen this, but a link to addiction and maybe disordered eating or the impulsivity um, and the ADHD biomarker. Is that, a, is that a thing? Absolutely. Yeah, there is definitely a link there. And addressing the different neurotransmitters specifically to that in the global picture is a disordered eating. But what is biochemically creating that thought process of the disordered eating ADHD is is a, a major component of that. Sure. Yep, absolutely. And that brings me to my next question, and this is purely out of my, my own curiosity, is, and I'll explain the backstory to this, is when I was undiagnosed with the, the ADHD, I was coping via um, bulimia, um, and I was also drinking heavily at the time, and I was on a contraceptive, right? And I noticed that that was probably the worst time of my anorexia, bulimia, impulsivity, all of that. Then in my early 20s, I went off of the contraceptive um, and I got my menstrual cycle back and I found a lot more peace come over me. Um, the urges got lower. My ability to make rational decisions got lower, um, got better. And then I was diagnosed with endometriosis at a later stage. I was experiencing a lot of hormonal pain, um, sorry, menstrual pain, and the doctor put me on the pill again. And then I started to notice the impulsivity, the urges, the um, anxiety, the, all of those kinds of things. So can you speak more into the idea of hormonal fluctuations and what they do with the, you know, the link to addiction, impulsivity, ADHD, um, and and whether whether medications like this that change your hormonal um, makeup can actually be a part of the activation of certain genetic biomarkers? Sure, great, great uh, backstory there. Using your own personal. Um, journey through this, but hormones play a huge role because they affect our brain chemicals. And if they're affected and we already have these, this underlying DNA, all of this together, it's a symphony constantly. You know, the health, the, the health word is homeostasis. So we always want to be in balance and that's on a cellular level that we want to be in balance too. So when we're out, when our hormones are fluctuating, oftentimes that's when you see for the first time in someone's life that has this predisposition start to act out because it's there. And now these hormones are fluctuating. Like you're experiencing something, this wave that you've never experienced before. And you don't know what to do with that emotionally. And your body physiologically doesn't know what to do with it. So, ev you know, some like saying uh, a parent says to me, I never saw this behavior. And then at 15, my child became a totally different person. I don't even know who they are, you know, and the parent gets all upset. And, and it's because the hormones kicked in and it changed everything in that balance. So hormonally, that plays a big, big role in everything. And that's why we measure hormones that we don't just say, OK, here's your brain chemicals. Here's your genetic SNPs. Hormones is a big part of how all of that works together. We now know that the nervous system, the endocrine system, and the immunological system are not all separate, but we call it the NEI super system. Someone says, wait, you mean like my endocrine system actually affects my brain chemicals? Sure. Just use an example of if you're hungry and you're hangry, how do you act out? No one wants to be near you 
right? Because your blood sugar has dropped so much, it affects your behavior. And we're seeing a change in these chemicals. So it's all related that you're saying, you know, you mean inflammatory markers have to do with my, my brain chemicals? Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is all together. That's why I say there's not one, okay, here's the addiction gene. It's all of these together and how they play out. So hormones is a very big piece of it. I think it's very valuable information for people to know and understand this, that like, what you're doing to yourself hormonally and when you are going through hormonal, hormonal changes, whether it's through puberty or whether it's just your monthly cycle or even men. I mean, men go through hormonal fluctuations. They don't get a menstrual cycle, but they still go through these fluctuations. Um, and to understand how much they can actually affect the way that you behave and the way that you think. And the way that you behave and you, the way that you think is obviously going to be you know, involved in, if you have an addictive personality or an addictive biomarker, you're more likely to act on those things if your hormones are out of whack. So <laughs> a very important thing for people to be aware of. And even this inflammatory um, idea that you said, you know, um, how I, I'm not sure if I'm understanding you correctly, but how inflammation in the body can also affect the way that we think and behave. Is, is, that, how, is that what you were referring to there? Absolutely. Yeah, it all, it all plays a role. So these genes get turned on or turned off. If we have an inflammatory condition, keeping this gene turned on, it's going to affect that homeostasis. It's going to affect everything else. And in the, in the um, specifically within the hormones, one of the things that we look at is cortisol, which is our stress hormone. And we should have a normal 24-hour cycle of the way that hormone is produced in our body, what we call the circadian rhythm. It makes sense that you should have the most when you wake up in the morning, because in theory, you've slept well, your body's had the opportunity to recharge, those cells get regenerated, they're good to go. And then as we go through the day, it comes down a little bit, goes up a little bit, and then at night it comes down again because we're supposed to be winding down. When I see someone's um, cortisol levels and then we see spikes huge in the middle of the day or spikes huge at night and this person says, I can't go to sleep, I'm like, well, you are so wired. You're wired but tired. You're exhausted, but you can't turn your brain off. It's because of what's happening with the hormones. What is that going to do to your, your brain chemicals? What's that going to do to your next day? If you're not sleeping, what happens to your next day? It's horrible right? So it just exacerbates what's already underlying there. On a personal note, I know that my mother is going to love this episode <laughs> um, because she she always like, she's so passionate about this idea. Like it's not you, you know, yes, there are mental processes and traumas, mindsets and thoughts and belief systems and blah, 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 but also to just to acknowledge the valuable resource that is our physical, that is our physicality, that is our genetic makeup, that is our, our body. And how can we not include this entire system in the process of recovery from an eating disorder or a treatment in addiction or depression or anxiety? So, so valuable. Thank you so much for this. Um, one thing that you mentioned, you said the biomarkers being switched on and switched off. So I'm then thinking, okay, cool. If we if we have a biomarker, say, of a propensity toward an addiction that then manifests in an eating disorder that gets turned on by hormonal fluctuations and puberty and in environmental elements, and blah, 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 then how does someone 
then be able to switch that off? Like what, what is the process of switching off a biomarker? Sure. So the first part of it would be addressing the physiology. What needs support in there? Is it nutraceuticals? Is it pharmaceuticals? Is it a combination of both? It just depends on the individual and what's shown in their labs. And then beyond that is the actual lifestyle parts that we can actually employ into our lives. You know, if, if to turn off a specific biomarker that's on overdrive, we need to bring it down say from an inflammatory response, we need to bring it down because then that's going to bring down the clinical part of the brain chemical. How do we do that? What would, what would be lifestyle choices that we could make? Maybe meditation, sitting in silence, going out in nature where it's calm and you forget the frenetic part of the world. Is it sleeping minimum of eight hours a day? You know, it's all of those other parts that help what we're trying to do with the physiology part. To me, going out in nature is my calming space. I mean, if, if I don't get out there every day, I'm a caged lion that needs to be outside and see the beauty of nature because that brings it down. Whatever happened in the office, you know what? That's good because I'm outside and I'm feeling good. So whatever resonates with your listener to be that calm place is what they need to find. Being able to sit in silence every day for a small period of time. And you'd be surprised at the amount of people that are afraid to do that. But get past that because you will feel so good in doing that. So those are the things that are within our control every day. Can we go to sleep earlier? Do we really need to watch that next episode on the binge that we're doing? You know, you're the next day you're going to say, gosh, I'm really happy that I went to sleep instead of dragging the whole day and making what we've already got going on physiologically harder to deal with. I think it speaks so much into this idea, you know, we are in a what they call hustle culture where it is seen as so necessary to be go, go, go and to be filling our space and time with everything that we can, um, whether it's in a distraction way or whether it's in a um, achievement oriented way, I always say to the people I work with, you know, you've got to make stillness a priority. Um, this is actually a treatment uh, method for your, your illness of this stress, this addiction, this eating disorder. And I think you spoke so importantly into that idea of people afraid to do it. Now, I know this goes a little bit off topic, but have have you ever experienced that fear of coming to stillness? And if so, what did you do to to move through that? I don't know that I'd say a fear of it, but I certainly had a million reasons why I didn't have the time for it, right? I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. Um, I found time for it. I did something um, <laughs> kind of crazy called the, uh, it's a hike called the uh, Compostela de Santiago. It goes from southern France through the Pyrenees Mountains across Spain. And it was a 32-day hike, which was insane, you know, to leave my practice, leave my family, all that kind of stuff. But I wanted to do it. Actually, I completed it on my 50th birthday. So to go into the second half of my life. And I lived a very frenetic life. I have to be here. I have to be here. I have to do this. I have to do that. That hike, not knowing that that was going to be the end result changed the rest of the, my life really did because I learned how to use that silence because I did it by myself and to be by yourself for that long. That's challenge. That really is a challenge because 
when all you do all day is eat, walk, and sleep, it gives you time to process all of those emotions that as humans, we want to get rid of the fastest way possible, right? And how do we do that? Often is by substances or addictions or just go, go, go. That in itself can be an addiction. Just go, 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 frenetic. And I learned how to be in that silence. And from then on, I knew, like I said to you earlier, I have to go out every day or else I'm a caged lion. I have to be in that silence every day because that brings me back to center. For me, that's what it does. So for each one of your listeners to take the time and figure out what brings them back to center is so valuable. And sometimes with the simplest of parts, like I, I do gratitude journaling every day and I'll say to patients, you need to do it. They're like, no, no, no. I read about that. I'm like, you don't read about it. You do it. <laughs> it's an action step. It's a verb. And, and it's whatever you find, but not just to intellectually know those things, but to start using them as tools, just as important as your protocol right? Those, those are game changers for people. Yeah. And I think we are in information overload these days. And, you know, I, even though this podcast platform is another form of information, it's, I think it's more important about like, what do you hear and then what do you integrate? So one of the things that I'm now only at the age that I'm at, I'm still quite young, but still it's taken me a long time to get here, to get to the acceptance place that I, as a person, possibly because of my genetic biomarkers need a lot more time and stillness to be able to cope with life. Like <laughs> it's just, um, I'm accepting, okay, that's just a part of me. And being an, a high achievement oriented person and also, which I don't know if that's a genetic biomarker, it might be, you can tell me, <laughs> um, but being a high achievement oriented person as well as being a person who needs a lot of time to do things, it can be very conflicting to say, well, if I'm taking a lot of time and I'm creating the stillness and I'm needing to be slow, then how am I achieving all the things that I want to achieve in this 24-hour period? Um, and kind of like moving towards acceptance in this. And I think a lot of people with eating disorders tend to be quite high achievement achievement oriented and tend to actually need a lot more time and space and stillness in order to cope with life. And this has been one of the biggest things for me to accept is to go, oh, okay, I need stillness as a treatment modality, as part of the way that I manage the illness that I have. Um, and if I don't do that, then I'm switching my biomarker on and guess what? I'm probably going to go back to binging and purging, you know? So such an important thing for, for us to see the work that you do. The work that you do is saying, how can we recognize what it is that you're probably going to need to, to be aware of in your life? And then that can give you like, there's nothing wrong with me. I, I used to stay in a lot of self-judgment of like, oh, why can't you do this faster? Why can't you understand this quicker? Why can't you keep up to like, keep going with the pace that people expect you to go? And I, there was a lot of frustration and self-doubt and then going like, 
oh wait, that biomarker says that about me. And so if I don't do it that way, then, <laughs> you know, so, so, so I love this. Um, my, my question to you is like, let's say hypothetically, we have a parent who is maybe wanting to have a child or has had a child or even an adult at any phase of their life. And they're wanting to know, okay, what is my genetic makeup? What can I look out for? What, what can I do? So how do you step in? I know you did mention a little bit about what Wired for Addiction is, but how can a person come to you and what phase of their life should they come to you? Like when do we, do we get every single parent to now genetically map their children before birth or like, you know, how does it work? Right. Great, great question. Um, So perfect world, everybody would do this because it can make your life a lot easier. You know, it, it could be just used as knowledge or it could be used as, okay, here's what I need to be careful of. Here's things that we should stay away from. And we have seen patients as young as two, as lo- as old as 98. So it really runs the gamut. Um, oftentimes, we see someone when the problem is already there. And they've already gone to the doctor for the first, second, 10th time and be given a prescription for something that didn't work. That's by by the time we see them, that's typically what's already happened. So it really just depends on the individual, what's happening in their life. But I mean, I, my whole family has done it. Um, it's, it's, you know, even it's a gift that you can give somebody to say, I love you so much. I want your life to go as well as it can. So you can become all you can be given what you've got to work with because we've all got something. And just knowing that before we get there can really change things. You know, so as I said earlier, we work with patients all over the world. Uh, we drop ship the lab kit to them. Our website is wiredforaddiction.com. So www, all spelled out, wiredforaddiction.com. You can go on there. We, even our clinicians, give a 15-minute consult at no cost complimentary to see if this is a fit for you. Is it something that would benefit you or, you know, hey, this isn't what you need. Why don't you go try this? And it's as simple as that. We, as I said, a couple of weeks later, we get back the data. We create this biomarker evaluation that's unique to your DNA. And then we stay with you over the six-month period of time to make sure that we're getting where we're supposed to go. You know, when you think about the big picture, Kristen, there are seven and a half billion people in the world with seven and a half billion different DNAs, yet the way we treat them is this, everybody has the same. That doesn't make sense. I mean, I really think that there's going to be a point in history where we look back and say, that was so archaic. Everybody got an SSRI. Everybody got an anti-anxiety. How ridiculous. No one's, no one's DNA is the same and no one's life is the same. I don't know what someone else's struggles are. They're feeling them every day, not me. You know, so doing the objective lab really gives us what's going on inside of your body. And what's going inside of your body is how your mind thinks. How your mind thinks is how your life plays out. I think this can be so valuable for any of my listeners um, who are struggling with disordered eating and maybe any other co-occurring illnesses, which is highly likely to be able to say, here's a tool that I can use that can help me that can help me shorten the process of trial and error in my treatment. And that can, you know, even I think you should even be working with treatment centers. I mean, I, you, I don't know if you are, but but like let's 
let's have our patients come into our treatment facilities and get these testings done so that we can from the from the get-go be treating our, our patients correctly you know and and not be messing up because I see that so much in in treatment for eating disorders I see so much misdirected and misdiagnosed and you know one person that I was working with actually a close friend she she was diagnosed bipolar only to then six months later be diagnosed borderline personality disorder now being diagnosed ADHD and like the medication that she's been on throughout this process I've witnessed it and it's messed her up you know so like um yeah I just I feel I feel so strongly about this specific uh, treatment, the this these labs, the work that you're doing specifically in the eating disorder field, so that we can actually start saving lives. Because you uh, you have people going on medications that are incorrect for eating disorders and committing suicide, and we don't want to see that anymore. We don't want to see that as the end result of misinformed medical diagnosis and treatment. You know, so. Yeah, I, I, I'm super passionate and it's, it's been wonderful to talk to you. I, I'd love to know if there's anything else that you'd like to inform my listeners of, any messages you have for people out there maybe, you know, wanting to explore this a little further or anything else that you feel might be relevant to our discussion today. Sure. Well, thank you for bringing up the point about uh, treatment centers. We work within treatment centers too. If someone listening to this is in a treatment facility and wants this done, contact us and we will have that happen in the treatment facility. We also see patients in jails, you know, so often, well, all the time, someone's mental health is not addressed while they are incarcerated and then they get out. You know, it's not a wonder they wind up back in there because nothing's been done to address their mental health. So that's a really great point. It's not just the individual that can come to us. It's um, people within the legal system. It's within the treatment facility situation. I'm so sorry to hear about your friend and all that she's been through. That's that's beyond a struggle and unnecessary. That's the sad part. And what happens to people along the way and the people that we lose as a result of, of that happening. But, you know, I would just say in the big picture, we're not healthy one day and sick the next. It's all the living that we do in between there that brings us to either end of that spectrum. And this is another tool that can bring us to the spectrum of health and living our best life truly because life becomes easier when everything is working the way it should. And when you see every day as a gift, my gosh, you can't ask for more than that. You know, but if you're struggling every day, you're not seeing the gift, you know? So, so that's kind of my, my thing. It's like, don't wait to the end of your life to see your life as a gift have it all together, have all the pieces complete and have that balance to that's how you're living it. And then it is a gift. That's so beautiful. Thank you. I I, I love this. It just moves me because uh, I'm going to tell you a little story. I remember maybe 12 years ago, driving on a road trip with a, a guy that I was dating and he looked outside and he was like, wow, look at the sky today. And I just, I was so angry with him. I was just like, you like, it's just a scar. How can you be happy about it? I was so miserable, so depressed, so stuck in my illness. And today I'm that person who goes and like, oh, look at the, the flower and look at that beautiful star and ah, oh, the wind, it's so beautiful. You know, like, <laughs> and that's genuinely how I see the world. Um, and so if you can, if you can take a person who has, um, and you know, I, 
I will only speak about this from my own personal opinion. And I am not saying that there's any, like, please don't take this as a, a, a diagnosis or a suggestion or anything like that. But I personally opted against medication. I said, I want to do this through stillness. I want to do it through spiritual growth. I want to do it through meditation and through lifestyle changes and all of that. And if if I can say, wow, there is a place where the idea of life being a gift was just foreign to me. And the idea of life being a gift is obvious to me now. <laughs> so thank you so much for, for being on the show. Um, you have mentioned your website where we can find you is there any other way that we can get in contact with you or where we can find content or more information about the work that you do sure um the ted talk is out there uh evelyn higgins i think it's biomarkers of addiction um there are other podcasts that are up there's a lot of information um that you can that you can find dr evelyn higgins evelyn higgins um but thank you for the work that you're doing Kristen, because this you're, you're what helps people because they're going to go to you and feel safe and you share your story openly and they feel like they're not alone. And that's what can get somebody to then say, okay, I'm going to do what you suggest. I'm going to jump in there because I've seen what you've done with your life. And again, if anybody um, wants to contact us and see if this is something that they should do, it's wiredforaddiction.com. You can set up for a consult there and we'd be more than happy to talk to you and point you in the direction and, and see where, what we can do. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. If you have liked it, share it with people who you think might benefit from listening to it as well. Don't forget to go to my Instagram page called at Curious About Recovery to find out about upcoming episodes or to browse the episodes of the past. You can also follow my page called at Kirsten Honeyball where you can get inspiration for your eating disorder recovery.